And we're grateful that you are so big. God, there's nothing in our life that can defeat you. There's nothing we will ever encounter that is stronger than you. Jesus, thank you that you are great and that your love for us is also great. Jesus, I pray that today as we consider reconciliation, as we consider some hard topics, God, I pray that you would help your word to come forth. Lord, I pray that you would um, lead us into peace. In Jesus' name, amen. I still, I still, I still apparently don't know how to load the dishwasher right. I still like to sleep in on Saturdays. I still forget to put the toilet seat up. I still want to know what you're thinking. I still love that question. It's supposed to be up, right? I still mess up. I still need to say I'm sorry. I still need to cheer you on. I still need to pray for us. Well, what is our assignment in marriage? What will cause us to make the distance? What will cause us to hang in there? I still remember the promises we made. The promises we made. I still. I still. Love you. Love you. I still. I still. I still do. I still. I. I still do. I. I still do. I believe that all of us, when we say I do, mean it at that time. It's just how do you keep it? you guys again sign up for that it's going to be great but now I'm going to ask you a question um, and I didn't ask first service this but I'm curious when did you realize that your family was the weirdest family you knew did anybody, did anybody have a singular moment <laughs> Gary's like yeah it's definitely mine who here thinks that their their family is definitely weirder than anyone else's here in this room yeah okay yeah there's a few confessions okay well now you've got two votes on that one so <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we have a winner. <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, well, the thing for me was when I realized uh, that my family, there was this one time, 
uh, I'll spare you the gory details. I killed a hamster. There was a door involved. It got ugly. Not on purpose. It was a mistake. And uh, so I realized that my family was the weirdest family ever because the way, like, we were still crying cause from just terror because I just, like, graphically murdered this little hamster. And we were still crying and, like, eating ice cream. And uh, that's a bug. Uh, sorry. <laughs> Squirrel. Um, we were, like, in the midst of our tears. And one of us cracked a joke about how he's going to be a lot more flexible now. And <laughs> we were like, that's pretty dark, but that's pretty funny. <laughs> you know, like, growing up, your family is unique to you. you. It's a special blend. You, When you think about the things that you've done or seen your siblings do, done with your siblings or seen your siblings do, you're like, it's amazing that we're not dead. Like, I can't, I can't believe that. And then, you know... Uh, some of the things that they, they do, it's like, I, I have years of blackmail on you. You know, like you could say, I know, I know things about you in your life that forever, like I could get millions of dollars out of you if you had them, but you don't. You know, we, we get to know our family and we get to know the weirdness and we get to love the weirdness. I mean, I, I don't know, maybe some of you haven't quite always embraced the weirdness, but like there's this thing about family that when you have family, it's like they're in this category of, yeah, but. They might be weird, yeah, but I still love them. You know, they might smell bad sometimes, yeah, but I still will be around them. I might say, go take a shower. But, you know, we, we put them in this category where we're like, whatever happens, I'm going to be your family. I'm going to love you, you're going to love me, I'm going to accept you, you're going to accept me. And there's just like this sense of everything's going to be okay. And that's what it is when it's healthy. You know, when you have a healthy family that is, uh, Pastor David did a great job talking about 10, 10 symptoms of a very healthy family last week. Um, I want to encourage you, if you haven't listened to that, please go on our website and listen to it. But I want to talk a little bit about what happens when we don't have that category anymore when we start shifting it away. And sometimes it happens through lots of little things. Like, we all have those little things, but sometimes it's, 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 it's like there's this moment where things break. And I want to tell you a little bit, it's a little personal, but I want to tell you about um, that moment for me when I, I went from they're crazy and I love them to they are just crazy. Um, it was, you know, growing up, my, my mom um, was at times kind of emotionally expressive. I'll say it that way. And it, it made things kind of scary sometimes to be home. Uh, there were times when she asked us to just go away and never come back. There were times that she said she despised us, she hated us. She didn't mean it. But in those moments, she was overtaken by her emotions, and it scared us kids. And so I started accumulating kind of that, ugh, this isn't good. And then my dad, he, he processed his anger. Uh, I'm, I found out later the way that his parents taught him. Um, which was sometimes uh, kind of explosive, kind of painful sometimes. And so I, I started stacking up these. They are really weird, but I still love them. And it was like, uh, over time, it got more and more to the point where I was like, wow, they're really weird, and I still love them. And then there was this moment when I was a teenager, and obviously that's just part of being a teenager is having a little schism with your family. But I was a teenager, and... Things happened with my sister. Um, 
that really made my parents very upset. And I took a stance on that that was very unpopular with them, took the tension that was already there, and it broke it. And I, I, I still remember that day when I went from the category of, yeah, but they're still my family, to, no, they're just crazy. And I started to live in this world of two realities. Because, see, really, one reality says that um, my mother is my mother and my father is my father. My sisters are my sisters. Like, biologically speaking, there's no way that I can uh, make that not happen, save from going back in time and making myself not exist. Like, since I exist and since I exist in this family, they are my family, whether I want it or not. Whether I like it or not, whether I claim them or not. They are my family. Maybe some of you have family members like this, where it's like, they, they are my family. And I was living in this one world where like that was true. But then I was telling myself something else completely different. I was telling myself, my narrative was, my real, if it was really my family, they wouldn't treat me like this. And if it was really my family... They wouldn't have hurt me like this. And if it was really my family, I wouldn't be alone. And I, I started to say, basically, you know, uh, not my family, and I started taking candidates for more family. And so actually God brought some people into my life that I consider to be family now. But I wasn't born into that. But I was living in these two worlds. And today I want to talk to you about reconciliation, which is a, a big word, and um, it means a lot of things. I'm going to say it about 100 different times, so if you're tired of hearing reconciliation already, get used to it. But um, reconciliation, in a, an accounting kind of sense, is really, really simple. It's taking what's actual and taking the narrative reports, and it's making those harmonize either realizing that, yes, they are the same, we can put this in the little box for later in case the IRS ever investigates us, or there is a discrepancy here, we are accounting for it, we're going to put it in the box and put it away. Like, when you reconcile the books, I used to be a bookkeeper and I would reconcile every week, and you would take what's reality, what the company actually spent, and what the company actually made, and you took and looked at all your paperwork and saying, you know, this is receipts and all that stuff and you accounted for all of it and you reconciled the two so that your narrative matched the reality and at the age of 17 I found myself in this place where there was no reconciliation in my concept of family there was no reconciliation between me or my family because of the hurt that had stacked up and I, before I lose too many people, I want to encourage you that if you are not married, that's okay. That's not the family I'm talking about. Everyone is a child. And a lot of us are parents. We all have cousins. We've all got uncles. Like, we've all got family that we consider to be close to us. And inevitably, I think, you either have, are, or will be walking through what we're talking about today. So I, I hope that you guys can stay clued in because I don't want to lose you. Because sometimes this separation does not manifest itself in the, um, in the way of hurt. You know, maybe for you, though, it is hurt. Maybe, like, your parents, your sibling, your spouse, your kids, your niece, your nephew, your cousin, I don't know. Maybe they said something or they did something 
that was just so incredibly malicious and hurtful to you that you feel like, wow, they're not even my family. Like, how could my family treat me like this? And, and you, maybe you don't even notice it, but maybe like you've built a schism between you. Maybe you've built a chasm. Maybe they've stacked up little hurts. And before you know it, you're standing across the Grand Canyon waving at them, thinking there's no way that we're ever going to be family again. Yeah, we'll sit peacefully at Thanksgiving, but that's it. And maybe not even that. Maybe it's hurt for you. Maybe it's not hurt. Maybe it's betrayal. Maybe someone that you are close to, maybe your spouse, they did something or they said something or they interacted with somebody in in a way that it's like, who are you? Like, what is this? They betrayed every sense of moral that you have or every sense of moral that they have. Maybe standards that you were raised by if it's siblings. You know, inevitably, I think the people that we love surprise us. And sometimes they surprise us and it feels like betrayal. And sometimes that sense of betrayal can like take its root deep down inside of us and can like grow into bitterness and it just gets the schism bigger and bigger and bigger. But maybe it's not hurt and maybe it's not betrayal, but maybe it's deceit. Now, I I admit that really honestly, you could probably wrap all three of these in the same category because there are some people that will commit all three of these things all at the same time. They'll hurt you, they'll deceive you, and they'll betray you all at once. But sometimes it's just deceit. Maybe somebody started off with a little white lie. Maybe they started off saying something about you or saying something that you're concerned about, and they wanted to tell you what you wanted to hear, and so they lied a little bit. And then to cover that lie, what's the best way to cover a lie? Tell another lie. And so they tell another lie to cover that lie, and then maybe they'll tell another lie to cover that lie. And before you know it, they're in this world where it's just like so different and so apart from truth that when you find out, you have no idea how to trust that person anymore. You have no idea who they are. You might even have said those words. I don't even know who you are anymore. The truth is, is that we have families that are a tremendous blessing. And, and family, I think, is one of the things that God has given us to bless us in this world. But at the same time, it is so powerful, the relationship that we have with our family, that if they say a little thing, that maybe a stranger, if they were to say the same thing, we'd be like, whatever. But if our family says it, it hurts us. And we start to grow and grow in bitterness and schism. Before long, we find ourselves totally apart from them, totally cut off, no relationship left. That's a hard world to live in, guys. And I know it. And I want to tell you, with um, a little bit of studied walking, this one, that there is hope. I want to tell you that uh, there is no hopeless situation where Jesus is involved. There's no hopeless situation where if you and the other person are committed to reconciliation, that Jesus can't work something out between you. Uh, So I want to encourage you that at least that's the walk that I've been on, and I'm going to just take a quick look at some scriptures here, and we're going to talk about it a little bit more, and then I'm going to give you some some pointers um, from a couple stories. I think it's going to be fun. I'm afraid, I was telling Carissa during the interim time between periods, she's like, how did first service go? I was like, it was a downer. Because, you know me, I like try to, I cope with things by laughing, and I seriously can't think of anything funny about this. So, good luck. If, if I say something f- remotely funny, please laugh at that, and then we'll just all have a good laugh. But, uh, yeah. Like that, right there. Yep. Oh. Uh, 
So if you could do me a favor and turn to, I believe it's Matthew chapter uh, 19. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 19. This is a... Uh, I wouldn't say it's famous, famous, but it's had like secular songs written about it and like Saturday Night Live did a skit about it, so I'm pretty sure it's famous, like back in the Chevy Chase days. Um, this is a part when a rich young man comes to Jesus and he's like, what do I do to inherit the kingdom of God? And he says, well, just follow all the rules. And he's like, oh, I did that. And he says, okay, then sell everything you have and give it away to the poor. And he's like, oh, I have a lot of stuff. I don't want to do that. And Jesus basically had this conversation with this guy where he said, the bar for God's righteousness is right here. It's really high. In fact, it's way up there. And in fact, if you want to hear more about this very passage, we preached on it a couple months ago. But Jesus was laying out the impossible righteousness of God. And he was setting an incredibly high standard just so everyone would know that God does not cheat the system. And so this, this guy, he goes to him and he says, uh, what do I do, do to be saved? And he's like, give away all your stuff. He's like, oh, I don't want to do that. And verse 23, it says, truly I say to you, Jesus says, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So in case you're ever curious, the Saturday Night Live skit is very funny because it involves blenders and miniaturizing camels. So it's... Yeah. All right. So uh, when the disciples heard this, when they heard Jesus say that this is like really impossible, you can't do this, they were greatly astonished. And they said, who then can be saved? Who could possibly be saved? And Jesus looked at them and he said, with man, it's totally impossible. No one can be saved. If people were to just do this on their own, if people were to strive for this on their own, it would be impossible With man, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Which is interesting, because he's talking about the greatest divide that has ever been on earth. The divide between God and man. See, at the beginning, God created us to be made in his image, which we are. That's the reality of the situation. He made us to be very good. And very quickly, we decided we wanted to go our own way. We wanted to walk away from him. We didn't want to follow his law. We didn't want to really listen to him. In fact, we thought he was maybe kind of cheating us. And so we decided to do what he said not to do because we wanted to see what would happen. Bad things happened. And so there was this schism between God and humanity because of sin, rebellion, selfishness, whatever you want to call it. There was this great schism between God and man. And Jesus was in the middle of fixing it. Right there in that little story. Jesus was in the middle of crossing that and he was still like explaining it to people so that later when people were reading it, they'd be like, oh, that's what he was talking about. He said that, yeah, the the gap is too wide. With man, it is impossible. There's no way that we can ever have a relationship with God on our own power. You know, when you reach the end of your days, um, I just uh, went to my grandma's funeral last week and, you know, I'm thinking about death and all that stuff. And when we reach the end of our days, we stand in front of God and he says, you know, uh, who are you? He said, well, God, but I did a lot of good things. I, I tried to be a good person. I tried to do right. He's like, uh, no, depart from me. I never knew you. We cannot cross this gap on our own. Never. We'll never be able to. It's impossible. Jesus said so. 
But he says, but with God, all things are possible. And then later he proves what he did. So I want to actually read um, Colossians 1. If you guys want to turn with me there, that'd be good. But if you don't, I'll read it. And I will try to read it legibly. Um, Colossians 1. Um, It's talking about Jesus. and, And Paul's writing this letter to a church, and he's trying to give them some idea of the hope that they have. And so he's explaining what Jesus did. And he uses like some complicated language, but it's actually uh, very accurate. It's, it's really great. So he's talking about Jesus, verse 15. He says, He is the image of the invisible God. He was the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, and in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things were created through him and for him. If it exists, Jesus had a hand in it. That's what he's saying. He says everything that exists was through him and ultimately for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I love that verse. The idea that Jesus himself is holding the universe together. The fact that we're not just like spreading out into like molecules and atoms just randomly scattering across the world. I think that's Jesus holding us together. There's physics involved, but I think he's doing it. Um... It says that he is the head of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be first, preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And then it says something really, really interesting and has everything to do with what we're talking about. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. I'm going to read that again in case we missed it. And through him to reconcile to himself everything, all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The work of Jesus was to take us from what we were first designed to be and what we actually are, which was miles apart. We were made to be in the image of God. We were rebellious. We were made to be very good. We were very bad. And Jesus' work reconciled those two things. He brought those two realities together to be the same thing. So that the people who are made in the image of God, the children of God, can actually be the children of God. The people who are the children of God can actually be friends with God. Jesus' work, uh, he uses this language, which is really, really interesting to me. Um, hopefully, has anyone here ever seen a war zone? Like in, in real life? Let's hope that stays true, that no one has seen a war zone in real life. It's a terrible, terrible thing. Um, For me, the movie Saving Private Ryan comes to mind. When they're at that village at the end where most of the buildings are missing, like half of them, and there's just piles of rubble in the street, and there's like burning things and dead people just laying everywhere. Paul uses this language of war. And he says that, that that Jesus brought peace through the cross. Through his act on the cross, Jesus brought peace between us and God. We were rebelling, and God was still saying, you need to follow me. And Jesus brought peace between those two things. And so the interesting thing for me is that oftentimes when I find myself like this with people, when I find myself in a schism where it's like they're supposed to be my family, but they're not really my family, I don't feel like they're my family, I don't love them like I love my family. I don't trust them like I would trust family. It feels like war sometimes, doesn't it? 
It feels like war. It feels like, uh, you know, we're just in these trenches taking pot shots at each other. Uh, I won't ask for hands on this one, but how many married couples have ever gotten into an argument and about 20 minutes in, you discover you either, one, don't remember what you started the argument over, or two, you realize this is the dumbest argument we've ever had. <laughs> okay. <laughs> There's a brave man. But yeah, same here, because Jenny and I, we've done that. We, we've, we've had arguments over things, and it's like, I'll, I'll say a little thing, and she'll say a little bigger thing, and I'll say a little bigger thing, and we're like shooting at each other over no man's land in our trenches, and we're like escalating and escalating and escalating. And eventually we realize that we're like upset about what we're going to watch tonight. Like actually angry on the inside, and we're just mad about television. You know, I don't know if you've ever felt dumb about an argument, but that's kind of what relationship can be if it's out of sync. If it's going to a place where both people are selfish, where both people are looking to their own needs, it can become a war. And the good news is that Paul says that Jesus bought us peace through the cross. So if you're taking notes, um, the first note there is that reconciliation starts with Jesus. There's no way that um, you can have long-standing, I think, reconciliation like the right way if you haven't first figured out how to be reconciled to God. Think about it. He's your designer. He's your maker. And he made you to be a certain way. And if you are still living your life saying, nope, I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to follow my own rules. I'm not really sure I even trust you. If you can't be reconciled at that level to who you are, how is it that you can have a relationship that is super healthy with another person who is probably also broken? Like, without Jesus, we're all just broken things wandering around trying to act like we're fixed. It doesn't work. So I want to encourage you today, if you are not reconciled with your maker, if you are not reconciled with Jesus Christ, if you haven't looked to him for peace, if you haven't taken hold of what he did on the cross and said, yes, I want that for my life, I don't care how long uh, it's been maybe that you've been thinking about this, if it's just like right now or maybe for the last 20 years, make that decision today. Because I was reminded really recently that we're never promised another moment. So I want to encourage you, if you are not reconciled with God, get that figured out. Okay, we're going to talk about good stuff, good stuff about reconciliation with people and all that, but if you haven't figured that out with God, get that figured out because it is, um, it is foundational. So um, I want to turn one last time to Second um, Corinthians chapter 5. After this, we'll be out of the epistles. Um, this is the same guy. This is the same author, Paul. He's the apostle. He's writing to a different church now. And he's using the same language because he's explaining kind of the same thing. But he says something interesting, and I want to see if you guys catch it. He says, That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Other verses say the ministry of reconciliation. So he says that Christ has reconciled the world... He is reconciling the world to himself. He's making those two things together. But then he says something else. He says, and he has entrusted to us this message of reconciliation. 
Peace is supposed to be on our lips. Wherever we go, we, if we're following Jesus and he's walking towards reconciliation, we must also be walking towards reconciliation. Like that's, it's just a natural, logical outflowing of that idea. That if that's where Jesus is going and if we're following Jesus, then we're walking towards reconciliation. So I can tell you, if you're not walking towards reconciliation today, you're not following Jesus that way. Which is a really hard thing to say. And I don't mean to sound super judgy about it, but if you're not walking towards reconciliation with the people in your life, you know, if there's enmity and you said, nope, I'm not crossing that gap, I won't do it, um, cuidados, be warned, watch out. So, we've been given this ministry of reconciliation. We've been given this message of reconciliation. We've heard it from Jesus, and, and we're supposed to turn around to other people, and where do we start? Well, the, um, the next thing is that forgiveness is necessary but not sufficient for reconciliation. If you wanted to write that in, it's forgiveness. And what do I mean by it's necessary but not sufficient? I mean that it must happen. There must be forgiveness for you to be reconciled with someone that you have an enmity with. You must, at some point, forgive them. You cannot be reconciled unless you forgive but at the same time, if you just forgive someone, you're not going to be reconciled. Reconciliation takes a long time, sometimes. Forgiveness can happen through a decision. How many of you have ever um, like built a house from the ground up? Or seen a house built from the ground up? We've all kind of seen that driving down the road. What's the first thing they do? Yeah, they lay a... <laughs> yeah, dig a hole... I, I even made that concession in the first one. Excavation could probably be included in the concept of foundation. You know, you dig your footers, whatever. But you, you, put, you put something to set the house on down first. And you got to get it right. you got to make it level and you have to pay attention. But how many of you have ever seen someone sleeping on a slab? You know? <laughs> yeah, probably just taking a nap. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, like for a living. Like, that's their home. They live on a concrete slab. They live on a foundation. They don't have a house around it. They've just got the concrete down, and they're good. That's kind of dumb. Like, no one's going to do that. And, but at the same time, that foundation is necessary for building a house. And I want to tell you that reconciliation is really more about building the house than laying that foundation. If we... Um, I'll just say a little bit about forgiveness. Uh, there's another, uh, we've, we've talked about forgiveness, um, but here's the short and skinny of it. We must forgive. <laughs> Should I repeat that? Um, we must forgive. Uh, Jesus tells this story about two servants, one who owes a gajillion dollars and one who owes him $500. Now, I realize that a gajillion is not a real monetary unit, Please don't judge me for that. You might look in your Bible and say, oh, that doesn't translate to modern numbers. It's like, well, yeah, it's made up. But it was supposed to represent this huge amount, okay? Lots and lots of money that this one servant owes this great and powerful king. Okay, so he owes a gajillion dollars. He can never pay it off in a million years. And he goes to the king and he says, please have mercy on me. And the king says, hmm, okay. And he does it, which is weird. Like, I don't know anybody like this. Like, if, if I was owed a gajillion dollars, I'd be like, let's get you on a payment plan. You know, just pay in. But, you know, he says, okay, I'll forgive you this debt. I'll, I'll totally write it off. It's fine. I forgive you the debt. I'm not going to hold it against you. You don't have to go to jail. And um, 
So the guy, he leaves. And you'd think that having been forgiven is a huge thing. He'd go away and that he would like forever be like the most uh, like generous person ever and the most forgiving person ever. People would be like, ah, sorry, I owe you 30 bucks. He'd be like, ah, forget it. I owed a gajillion and I got it forgiven. No. What happens is he leaves and his buddy comes along and he sees him and he's like, hey, you owe me 500 bucks, don't you? And his buddy's like, oh, yeah, I do. And so he says the exact same phrase that the gajillion, guy dollar, the gajillion dollar guy said. He says the exact same phrase to him. He says, please have mercy on me. Forgive my debt. And the gajillion guy, dollar guy is like, nope, not going to do it. He throws him in jail to try to collect his debt. Now everyone else around saw what happened, like they saw the whole thing, and they're like, dude, that's not cool. So they called the original master, and they called in the guy that owed a gajillion dollars, and he had to provide a pretty good answer for what he did, and he ended up getting thrown in prison. And Jesus tells this story about forgiveness. And he tells this story, and I don't know if you guys have figured this out yet, but you and I are the ones that owe a gajillion dollars. Like, we had this infinite gap. God's righteousness is something that no one could ever reach, but he just gave it to us. Like, it's, uh, it's not infinite, but it's a lot. And we owed that much. And he said, yep, I'll forgive you that. And so when we turn around to the people around us who have hurt us, who have deceived us, who have betrayed us, our loved ones, our family, and we say, I cannot forgive that. Uh, even the really serious ones, they pale. Now, the important thing to note is that forgiveness sometimes is as far as we can go. Sometimes we do have to just live with the house that's just got a foundation on the floor. We can't take steps towards reconciliation. And that's hard. But I want to talk about the situations where we can. Where we can take steps towards reconciliation. But I want to encourage you, if you are a follower of Jesus right now, and you have unforgiveness in your life, go forgive them today. Make that decision in your heart. Make, make that understanding that Jesus forgave you of a tremendous thing, and that we must be following him in forgiveness. It does not mean that you're going to go be buddy-buddy like everything's normal. You're going to just skip the process of reconciliation and you're just going to go back to the way things were. That's not healthy. But forgiving is necessary. But it's not sufficient for reconciliation. So right now what I'd like to do is I'd like to actually tell you two stories. And I think I've got time to tell both, which is good. Because I skipped one in the first service and I like that story better. So, uh, um, Two stories about, about reconciliation that helped me when I was going through the process. And, and I'm hoping that maybe these will help you too. So I want to tell you a story about two brothers. Famous brothers. They're church famous. Jacob and Esau. Okay. Esau was the older one. Jacob was the younger one. Jacob was tricky. He was, as uh, Smeagol from Lord of the Rings would say, he was a tricksy hobbit. Uh, he was sneaky. He manipulated his father and he manipulated Esau to give away his inheritance and his birthright. Everything that Esau owned went to Jacob. Everything that Esau was went to Jacob because Jacob tricked him. 
Like, this is not a small thing. We read the story and we remember, like, the flannel grams with, like, the little figurines and we think, oh, isn't that cute? We all know how it ends. Like, this is serious business. If this happened between you and your sibling and they took, like, you had a parent die and they took all the inheritance, I have seen that split a family. I have seen much less than that split a family. It is real and it's tough and it's hard. And Esau had every right, I think, at that point to be mad at Jacob. Not to the point that he took it. Because Esau was so mad at Jacob that he wanted to kill him. And so Jacob fled for his life. And he went off to a a land. He found a girl. And then since the Old Testament is strange and it has weird cultural things going on, he found a girl and then he found another girl. And he started having children. And he kind of carried on with life. And the story kind of diverged from Esau for a while. We don't know what happened with Esau. The next time we hear about Esau, Jacob's grown. He's got wives. He's got lots of kids. And he's scared. Let's read. It's in Genesis chapter 33, if you want to read with me. I'll start in verse 1. Now remember, the last time that Jacob saw Esau, he was afraid for his life. Reasonably. He did a terrible thing. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, Esau was coming. And 400 men with him. Now let's pretend we don't know how the story ends and think, if I knew somebody didn't want me to be alive. And the next time I saw them, they had like 400 men with them. I would think, well, it's been a good run. I'm just, I'm out because there's no way I'm going to live through this. He's going to kill me. Like, I would be terrified at this point. And I think that Jacob might have been too. So he saw the 400 men and so he does this thing. He divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants and he put the servants with their children in front then Leah with her children and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He puts, this is terrible, parents shouldn't have favorites, but he puts the least favorites in the front, he puts the second favorites in the back and then he puts the favorites in the very back. Rachel and Joseph are dead last because he wants to make sure that they're most safe and he himself goes in front of everybody. So he's kind of gearing up for a confrontation here. And he himself went on before. But he was bowing to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and he embraced him and he fell on his neck and he kissed him and they wept. Does this sound like it's going to escalate to war? No. Something has happened. Jacob is approaching Esau. He's bowing down to the ground. Esau runs to him and he hugs him and he kisses him and they cry together. This sounds like a reunion. This sounds like Jacob might be coming home. And even uh, they have this like little familiar thing, you know, when you run into family and you see the kids, you're like, and who are these people with you? And Jacob said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Which is interesting. 
And so then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Like Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. And Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? See, Jacob sent on ahead supplies to meet Esau on the road to like try to pacify him. And he's like, What's all that? Like, Why did you send all this stuff? And um, Jacob said, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. So listen to Jacob's language. Now remember, Jacob was obsessed with taking Esau's stuff and taking Esau's name, his status. And Jacob's language towards Esau is, I'm your servant. You are my Lord. It was a word that they used. Actually, the word is Baal. And it was used to describe husbands, uh, some gods, uh, rulers, Governors, people you respect. And Jacob looks to the brother who, whom he stole his birthright and he says, I brought it for you that I might find favor in your eyes, my Lord. What is going on here? Like there's reconciliation happening and it must have been happening. And the only thing that I can guess at what's happened here the only element that exists between Jacob and Esau is time. That's the only thing. Like, I really don't think that Esau was like marching out to kill Jacob and he saw the cows and he was like, well, I won't kill him for the cows. And then he's like, oh, I love you, brother. This is the best cow I've ever seen. Like, it's probably not the case. The only thing that happened between Jacob and Esau, between murder and reconciliation, was time. And sometimes time helps. Sometimes time really does help. You have to put distance between right now and when that thing happened. And then you can get clear and you can think and you can say, what should I do? How should I be reconciled here? Uh, I want to do an exercise and it might not work for young people, but I want everybody to think about how old they are. Sorry, we're not going to dwell on that. Uh, I want everybody to think about how old they are and I want you to divide that in half. You don't have to say it out loud. So just think of that number and then think, where was I living when I was this old? Some of us might have to scratch our heads a bit. Where was I living when I was this old? What did I love when I was this old? Like, what were my favorite things? Who were the people I was with? I would be willing to bet that the person that you were then is a lot different than the person you are now. Am I right? It's a different world, isn't it? And sometimes the person that was there representing you in the argument, the past you, was different than who you are now. And you are in a place, after maybe some time, to go back to the person that you have enmity with and extend peace extend reconciliation extend that message maybe now I want to say I'm using this language where I say time helps and then next I'm going to say that intentionality helps because it's not a guarantee there's no guarantees here it's not like well if you just wait seven and a half years and you say these three things in this sequence then you will always be reconciled with anyone that you have problems with it does not work that way promise but time really does help I think 
And I think the other thing that we learn from this story, and I'm going to check another story really quick that kind of reiterates this, but um, that intentionality helps. Jacob did not go haphazardly to Esau. He didn't just wander in and wait, you know, wait for Esau to apologize. He didn't wait for Esau to make it right. He didn't wait for something to just happen because usually that doesn't work. He went out. Now, in this case, it kind of did work. But he went out and he sent out stuff ahead of him. He sent out riches ahead of him to, to, to pledge to Esau to make peace. He, he bowed seven times as he's approaching Esau. He, he calls him my Lord. He calls himself my servant. His entire approach, I think, is very intentional. And it, it's, it's hitting at the, the fact that he wants to make peace. Brothers and sisters, we cannot have peace with those we do not have peace with unless we're intentional. We cannot get peace from war by just hoping it happens or hoping they figure it out. It doesn't work that way. Uh, the other story is also famous. Um, it's one of my favorites. Joseph, he and his 12 brothers, um, they tried to kill him, which hard to talk about at holidays after that. You know, hey, remember that time that you sold me into slavery to the Egyptians? That was fun, you know. But they tried to kill him. They sold him into slavery, and um, which was equivalent to killing. Like, they knew he would die a terrible death. And so they sent him off, and he does a lot of stuff. Lots of things happen to him. He has dreams. He interprets dreams. Um, he meets a woman that offers them things that she shouldn't and he makes good choices about that and then he becomes uh, he goes into prison and then he comes out and he like is the second most powerful person in the greatest nation in the world at that time kind of a cool little rap sheet you know like he's done well with his life he, he made lemonade and so he ends up in this situation where there's a famine across the land and his brothers are in the middle of the famine and they are trying to figure out how they're going to like keep eating and not starve. And so they go down to Egypt where they hear that there's this brilliant manager down there, this brilliant governor, who has made this plan to set aside a lot of food during the good times so there'd be food during the bad times. And so they go down and they hear about this guy and they run into him and they're like, wow, he's kind of a jerk actually. <laughs> Because what happens is he sells them the grain, he accuses them of being spies, and he says, if you don't come back with, without your brother, the one Benjamin, then uh, you don't come back. Like, he's just really kind of not nice to them. And then he sneaks their money back into their grain, which terrifies them, because then they're going to be like, well, that guy's going to kill us next time we go to buy grain, because we didn't buy it, we stole it technically. And so they went back, they told their dad what happened he's like well you can't take Benjamin I don't want him to die and so they go back to Egypt with Benjamin they eventually are starvy enough that they realize this is a good choice and so they go back to Egypt they meet Joseph and he starts like laying out these tests in front of them he puts the money back in the grain sacks after they buy it but then he also puts his cup in Benjamin's sack which is their favorite brother the youngest brother now so that he's gone and so they put, he puts the silver cup in there to see, I think, how loyal they are to their brothers now. 
And so what he does is he puts his own silver cup and he sends them on their way. And then he waits like two days and he sends a servant after him. And the servant's like, what are you stealing for us from, from us for? And the, um, the brothers are like terrified at this point because they know they're going to die. And so they go back and Joseph is like, why would you do this? Your brother should stay here. Benjamin should stay here and he'll be a servant here. And one of the brothers is actually like, no, just take me in his place. We've already lost one brother and it would kill dad. And no, please take me in his place. And it's at that moment that Joseph tells all the servants to leave. He starts to cry. He says, it's me, your brother, Joseph. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. Joseph goes through this whole process to make sure that they are different people now. That they are safe now. Like if they were the same people that threw him in the pit to sell him into slavery, it wouldn't really make a lot of sense to be reconciled to them. But he goes through this whole process to make sure that their heart has changed, that they love their brothers, that they look after their brothers, that they protect them. He, he goes through this process and he eventually says, it's me. I'm your brother. And then they hug and weep. By the way, if you ever get reconciled with your family members that you have enmity with, you do not have to hug them and weep. That's not a requirement, but it might, if it feels natural. Um, but in this case, he obviates this really interesting thing, that it really takes two to tango. He was intentional, but he also wanted to find out where they were at in reconciliation, if they were going to meet him towards that. Because let me tell you, uh, trying to be reconciled to someone who is actively still shooting at you is like standing up in the trenches waving a white flag when they're like mowing across with a machine gun. Like, they're just going to cut you down. There can be no reconciliation until there's peace, until there's at least a ceasefire, until at least the parties have agreed we're going to forgive each other. It takes two to tango. You both have to be a part of reconciliation, which is really, really sad because this is the one thing that will stop it from happening, I think. If you go to someone that you love, someone in your family, and you're like, hey, let's make this right. You know, I forgive you for whatever happened, and I, I hope that you would forgive me for whatever happened. Let's make this right. And they say, nope, I'm not interested. Well, at that point, reconciliation has kind of taken a pause. And maybe it just needs more time. Maybe God needs to intervene in their life. But in any case, it takes two people to reach out in reconciliation. Joseph did not just blanket forgive his brothers. Joseph did not just like open the door and just say, hey, it's me, Joseph. <laughs> Yay. No, he made sure that they were safe. He made sure that their heart had changed. And so I want to encourage you, if you are the person withholding reconciliation, stop it. You know, if you're withholding reconciliation, if they're trying to reach out, and if they're in a place where like they're not, they're a different person and they're reaching out and they're trying to make it better and you just can't forgive them or you can't reconcile, I want to encourage you to take a second look at that. To say, maybe I can be reconciled to this person. Because you have to be intentional about reconciliation to make it work. And if you are in a, in a moment right now where you're trying to reach out to somebody in reconciliation and, you know, there's forgiveness and they've changed and, and like, you're, you're trying to reach out and they're just like, nope. I want to encourage you that with God there is nothing that is impossible. He has melted hearts a lot colder than theirs. He has 
replaced our heart of stone with one of flesh. If he can do that kind of surgery, I think he can work with your, with your situation. I would, just can, I would just encourage you to pray for that person. Pray for reconciliation. Keep your orientation towards peace. And hopefully, eventually, through time, they will say, yeah, I want peace too. So I just want to real quick revisit those categories we talked about. And I know we're kind of running long, but we're almost done. If you've been hurt, um, be reconciled. Forgive that person. But if they're still in the process of hurting you, uh, it's okay to have peace between you, but not to buddy up right next to them. Until they stop shooting at you, it's hard to make peace. And so I want to encourage you, I'm not, I'm not saying like in an abuse sort of situation that you should just keep going back into abuse. You need to get safe. You need to build that relationship and, and, and hopefully God will restore you. I want to encourage you that if you've been deceived or betrayed, that trust takes a long time. And that's all right. That's just the way it works. There's an expression in addiction recovery. Um, ten years into the jungle, ten years out. Trust really works that way. When someone has betrayed your trust, depending on how profound it was, it might take that much time to get it back or to give it back. And if you yourself are the one who's lied, which we're all human, we do it, I want to encourage you to keep, keep your chin up, keep working towards reconciliation, and hopefully you'll have trust invested into you in small amounts. One time I really blew it with a, a mentor of mine. Big lie. Told a really big lie. It came out. And we had this conversation where he says, Adam, I forgive you. But it's going to take time to earn trust again. And that's just the way it works. But there's hope. We could be a community of people that seek out reconciliation. We wouldn't be like the world, just waiting for it to happen or looking for a bad guy. We could be the people that say, yeah, you're safe here. Our home is somewhere where you can be. We could be a people that change our community because um, our community hurts a lot and they're really good at holding grudges. We could lead the charge on that. So I want to encourage you, if you have hurts in your life, if you have relationships that are unmended, forgive, be forgiven, ask for forgiveness, and make te- steps towards reconciliation. So would the worship team come on up? I'm going to pray. God, thank you for your love. Thank you uh, that you lead us into reconciliation. And Jesus, that none of this would be possible if you hadn't already paved the way towards peace. So God, we're grateful for that. And I pray that you would help us to move towards peace in our life. Lord, thank you for the peace that you've brought into my life to this point. I pray for more. Lord, thank you for the peace that you bring uh, to each of us. I pray that you would continue to develop that. Lord, help us to pursue reconciliation. Help us to be part of that ministry of reconciliation that you talked about. God, we love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. So as the ushers come forward, I just want to say a quick comment. Um, This is not a bootstrap church, I don't think. 
I think we do well to lean on Jesus. And we're going to sing in Christ alone. And I hope that it will remind you that there's no good in us without Christ. There's no forgiveness, there's no peace without the work that he's done.